there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. In Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, we have the antidote to movement which is really sweeping the country. And I am deeply disturbed about this movement. I mean, deeply disturbed. You know, whatever the world says today, Francis Schaeffer told us just before he died, the church will be saying seven years from now. And the church does have a way of being infected by secular thinking. And the church was doing that back in Paul's day when he wrote his letter to the Romans because he said to the Romans, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Then you will be able to discern that the plan of God for you is good, etc. I don't know any way to correct our secular thinking other than to soak ourselves saturate ourselves in the word of God and we find the antidotes to secular poison in his word and so I wanted to read you these two verses three verses Ephesians 4 22 to 24 you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So here's another clue as to how we can gain what we can never lose. Put off the self. And that's what we were talking about in that last, under that last heading this morning, letting go of ourselves. That's the first thing we have to let go of. And if we don't let go of ourselves, we're probably never going to get around to letting go of anything else or anybody else. And we do need to let go of our children, as I pointed out, as just one example of the sort of thing that can be very painful for all of us. If you get my newsletter, um, a number of years ago, when my daughter was pregnant with number five, I put a little piece in there entitled, Too Many Children? question mark, and told how I felt, my personal feelings, when Valerie and Walt told me that they were expecting number five. I didn't feel very good about that. Not because I don't love big families. As I told you, I came from a family of six, and I think big families are just wonderful. But my heart went out to my dear sweet daughter, and I thought, she's got her hands full enough now. Lord, couldn't they have waited for maybe a couple of more years until she wouldn't have quite so many children in diapers and whatnot. Anyway, my immediate, instinctive, natural, human, motherly reaction was, oh, no. 
And of course, the Lord did not waste any time convicting me of how wrong, how very wicked my response was. And of course, I didn't say that to them. I didn't say that at all to them. But I had to get down on my knees and confess that I was totally wrong in that reaction. And one of the very obvious things that God brought to my mind was, it is none of your business. You know, I wanted to tell my son-in-law to sleep in the backyard for a while. (laughs) And the Lord was just saying, that is absolutely none of your business. And I had to get down on my knees and do a thing which really has helped me many times, and maybe this will help some of you who are struggling with any kind of an uncontrollable emotion or feeling that you know is not glorifying to the Lord. Just get down on your knees and put that thing in your hands, as it were, in your imagination, Um, in in my case, my fears for my daughter, my emotional reaction of negativism, I just put it in my hands and I said, Lord, I know this is wrong. This is not of you. I can't handle it. And so I hand it over to you. And in the name of Jesus, I relinquish this. I let it go. I reject it from now on. And you know, God does hear that prayer. And he does actually take the thing. And the feelings can come back again, of course, because feelings are not necessarily under our control. What we do with the feelings is most emphatically under our control. God has given us a will, and I will to surrender that to God. Letting go in order that we may lay hold. There is no way that we can lay hold of what God wants to give us and make us unless we are prepared to let go of what we were, that old sinful self. So this second talk is entitled, Lay Hold. Put off, Paul says. He does not say actualize or fulfill or express your old self, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. The old self is always being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And we have to continually surrender it over to God. Whenever that war, whenever we become conscious of that warfare that Paul experienced himself in Romans 4, Paul, that Romans 7, excuse me, Paul, that spiritual giant, that intellectual giant, said, The good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. It's only God that can deliver us from our old selves, but you and I have got to cooperate. Now let's get that through our heads. We have got to cooperate. God is not going to wash your dishes for you. You've got to wash the dishes. He has so constituted the world that your hands work. And I met a lady here today who only has one hand. And so I asked her what happened to the other one, and she told me about the accident with the corn machine. And she was so cheerful, and she said she knew it was of the Lord that it happened. But whatever you've got, if it's one hand or no hands or two hands, God has given them to us in order that we may cooperate with him in the work that he's given us to do. And one of the things that we have to cooperate with him in is this business of letting go, and that is an act of the will. 
and I surrender it by an act of my will, Lord, I will to give you these feelings about Valerie, my old self, my hurt, my feelings of rejection, my poor self-image, and I have yet to meet anybody that tells me they didn't have a poor self-image. I mean, talk about a poor self-image. I could go on for an hour and tell you how lousy mine was. I have to let go of that. Let go of the old self. Put it away. Put it off. You know, that's a pretty vigorous verb. You put off the old self the way you put off clothes. And if you're in a hurry to get to bed, as I always am when it's time to go to bed, I just rip them off and fling them just as fast as I can. I, I like to do things, everything that, my, mo my mother taught us this one thing, she said, everything that you're going to have to do every day of your life, learn to do it quickly. <laughs> and so I undress quickly, and I dress quickly, and I brush my teeth fast, and I take a, bed, a bath fast, and I make the bed fast, and all the things that I have to do every day, I try to do fast. When I have to go downstairs to fix lunch, I run down the stairs, and I run back up the stairs, and, you know, all of those things are willed actions, aren't they? But put off the old self, fling it away, just get rid of it. It is being corrupted by deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Do you want to be made new in the attitude of your mind? I do. I really want the mind of Christ. Now we're told that we have the mind of Christ. That's one of God's gifts to us. And yet, unless we will to think his thoughts with him and to align our wills with him and to obey, it's a very slow and laborious process for us to become like him, isn't it? So I'll give you three things, four things, under this heading. Lay hold of him. That's number one. Number two, Cast yourself completely on him. Cast yourself completely on him. Number three, learn to love him. Number four, remember you work in the sight of the courts of heaven. Now, that sounds like a strange one, but I think I can explain it when we come to that. Remember that you work in the sight of the courts of heaven. Now, Lars, as many of you will have guessed, is Scandinavian. He grew up in Norway. His father was Swedish. That's where the name Gren comes from. And, of course, Lars is a very common Scandinavian name. But he grew up in Norway and he spoke nothing but Norwegian until he was 10 years old. And just recently, my brother had come across a fascinating book about some of the things that went on in Norway in World War II. So Lars read it and he said, you got to read this. So I was reading it coming out here on the plane. And there's a perfect illustration in this book of the kinds of things that we're talking about today. Uh, the book is a true account of the underground resistance movement in Norway against Nazism. And, of course, when Lars was growing up, it was under the occupation of the Nazi uh, troopers, the Gestapo. And 
this story tells about this little transmitter. Lars tells me that it was punishable by death if any Norwegian was found with a radio of any kind, let alone a transmitter. And this young man had built a little transmitter with which he was transmitting news about the movements of the German ships that went by the Norwegian coast. And there was a small group of, of people who knew about this transmitter. And, of course, it was a very secret and a very, very dangerous and risky operation. And it says that what they wanted was a way of fighting the enemy in this sphere without either Germans or Quislings. The Quislings were the disloyal Norwegians who went over to the Nazi side during the occupation. So they wanted to fight the enemy without the Germans or the Quislings being able to recognize their opponent, even though looking at him in broad daylight. And they thought of a plan, a fantastic, sinister plan. If it was to be implemented, one of them must take upon himself a burden heavier, perhaps, than any man could bear. And it was Gunvald whom, in the end, they asked to bear it. None of the others would have refused to take the same appalling risk and strain if the choice had fallen on him, but there could be no other choice than Gunvald, because his farm was the base, and mentally he was best suited to play the part of a Nazi. Gunvald was to become a Nazi, to go openly into the enemy's camp and wage a secret, lone struggle to bluff the Germans and, if possible, get from them the details of what they had discovered about the resistance, warn those in imminent danger of arrest and spy out the Quislings and what they were up to. But first and foremost, the object of the plan was to provide the Hella transmitter, Hella was the name of the little place where this transmitter was, to provide it with effective camouflage. Gunvald was to become... Judas, he who had always been anxious to let, anxious lest his fellows should dislike him, who could not bear quarreling and was always the first to hold out his hand and offer to make it up, and had never had the offer refused, he, of all people, now had to act the part of a traitor. If he acted well, he would be ostracized and hated, and if he did not act well enough, his life would be forfeit. One miscalculated sentence, one wrong expression on his face or in his eyes might be enough to make the Gestapo suspect. And then a few pages later it tells about the agonies that he went through realizing the pain that his apparent traitorship was causing his mother and it was impossible to let her know what was going on. It was the thought of his mother that grieved him most. News of her son's death would have been easier for her to bear than being told that he had become one of those who were betraying their country. Yet he could not divulge his secret, even to her. No one outside the few who had helped the plan must know of it. It was if he was to succeed in his dual role, he must even exploit his mother's despair and shame as part of his cover. Indeed, he must try to fill her heart with hatred of him and make her tell all and sundry that she no longer had a son. Then, when everyone had turned their backs on him and wished him dead, perhaps the transmitter would be able to work for a few more months. And to him, that was everything. And it was through the work of that tiny little transmitter hidden in the attic of a farmhouse in a remote valley in Norway that the biggest German warship, the Bismarck, was sunk which was a staggering blow to Germany at the time.
Now, why do I give you this story? Isn't it clear that he had to give up his right to himself? He had to give up even his mother's confidence and the confidence of all his friends. He was literally spat on when he walked through the streets of his own village from the pe- by the people he loved in order to make it possible that the little transmitter would be able to transmit messages to England and England, of course, was in, in contact with all the allied forces. It was an act of patriotism. It was to save his beloved country. And as I said in this morning's talk on letting go, it is a dangerous relinquishment with a clear purpose. In order to lay hold on God, you and I have got to be willing to pay the price, no matter how painful that may be, and I don't think any of us is likely to be asked to pay the price that Gunwald had to pay. We have to pay the price of giving up our right to ourselves. And Jesus said that very plainly when he called his disciples. He said, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be, he wasn't coercing anyone. There are other rabbis to follow. But if you want to be my disciple, the first condition is give up your right to yourself. The second is take up your cross. And the third is follow me. Now, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody give up his right to himself? Can you imagine selling that notion in the 1990s? What do we hear on all sides? You've got to fulfill yourself. It is your life. It's your body. You have a right to do what you want with it. If it feels good, do it. Don't become dependent on anybody else. Actualize yourself. Express yourself. You can take all kinds of courses and seminars. and There are thousands of books on how to build up your self-esteem. So how can we say, give up your right to yourself? How can you say, deny yourself? which is another translation of the same passage. Deny yourself. Say no to yourself. And take up the cross. Now, you cannot carry the cross and yourself at the same time. It can't be done. Gunwald could not put his mother's mind at ease and carry the burden, almost too heavy for a man to bear, of being a double agent. It was painful, painful in the extreme. But he had a very clear purpose, a very high and admirable purpose to save the country he loved. If we're going to lay hold on God, we have to make up our minds that it is God we want rather than happiness, money, power, sex, understanding, love, appreciation, all of those things which are so perfectly natural and there's nothing wrong, there isn't anything intrinsically wrong with money or anything intrinsically wrong with sex or anything intrinsically wrong with wanting to be loved. 
That's the thing. That's where the cross cuts us. Oh, we could easily say, well, yes, I will give up certain things which I consider to be very worldly and sinful. And Lord, I, by your help, I will give up this thing which I know is sin in my life. And I will bring to you my rags, and I will bring to you my losses, and I will bring to you my sufferings, and I will bring to you my sins. But Lord, you wouldn't ask me to give up these, these perfectly normal, good, natural things, would you? And the answer was given to us by Jesus himself. He said, if you are not willing to give up your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your property and your lands, you cannot be my disciple. In fact, anyone who is not willing to sell everything he possesses, and I think we can take that figuratively as well as literally, it might be the case that God would want us to do is do it literally. Others have, but let's not limit it to that. Remember, selling everything you have. Jesus said, if you're not willing to sell everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. Is that a bid for popularity? I had an interviewer just completely so baffled that she was really quite angry with me about some of the things she'd heard me say. And she, she finally said, well, Elizabeth, she said, do you really expect to sell that kind of stuff in this day and age? And I just said, it's not really my job to sell it. It's my job to witness to it, to live by it, to be faithful to it. And she, you know, pretended to scribble a few notes. I don't think she did much with that part of our conversation. But in order to lay hold of him, I have to let go of the other trapeze. So laying hold of Christ, that's the first thing I want for us to think about. Now how do we do this? I have a new master when I lay hold of Christ. He is my master and my all. I am under his orders. When Jim Elliot signed my yearbook, he put 2 Timothy 2.4 under his signature. And I wasted no time in looking up 2 Timothy 2.4 because this was back in the days when I was desperately hoping that maybe Jim Elliot might be interested in me. And I thought, well, there may be some cryptic message here for me. And there was a message, but it wasn't cryptic. It says a soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. He must be holy at his commanding officer's disposal. And if the commanding officer says, go over the top, even though the bombs are falling, the soldier goes over the top. And when the opportunity came to attempt to reach the Alka Indians, Jim didn't hesitate for five seconds. When Nate Sates said, would you like to be part of Operation Alka? He said, would I like to be part of it? Buddy, I sure would. It was a dangerous relinquishment of the work that God had already given him to do, and he had no way of knowing whether God would want him to continue both works. But nothing mattered except the fact that here was an opportunity into which he felt he had to walk. 
So he is my master. I have a new master. And it is his glory, his will, that rules my life. And you know, ladies, the most wonderful thing about this is that it makes my life so simple. Do any of you feel as though your life is just entirely too complicated, cluttered, busy, jammed with too many things, too many activities, too many people? Well, there is a secret to simplicity. It's a very open secret. Just realize that God is your aim, your object, your strength, your song, your strong tower, and you don't have anything to do but the will of God. And that has comforted me so many times, especially when I go back from a trip, and I know that work will have piled up, and there will be phone calls, and there will be a pile of mail on the kitchen counter, and I used to get feeling very pressed and sort of frantic and panicky when I would get back and have to look at all that. And I didn't want to open the mail. I didn't want to deal with it. And now it's very simple. I just go back and I look at the mail and I say, Lord, you've read all this. You know what's in here. You know what the requests are and all the things that I'm going to have to say no to. But I only have one thing to do. That's the will of God. And Jesus was able to pray in John 17, verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. And I don't believe it's possible for me or you to finish all the work that everybody else would give you, would like to give you to do. In fact, my friend Betty Thomas said to me one time, God loves you and everybody has a wonderful plan for your life. But I just want to be able to pray that prayer. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. So just ask the Lord to help you one day at a time. And just a week or so ago, I talked to Valerie. She called me early in the morning. And she said, Mama, just pray for me uh, about all the things that are on my schedule today. Because in addition to having her seven children, I don't know if I mentioned this morning, but she does homeschool all the school-aged children, except the oldest. He has now started high school. He's 14. But, um, you know, being a pastor's wife, there are phone calls and the doorbell rings and there's the usual laundry and cooking and cleaning and taking care of the nursing baby and teaching the children in their schoolwork and everything else. So she said, you know, I just have to, every now and then during the day, I just have to drop down on my knees and say, Lord, what should I do next? It's not that she doesn't have 25 things that she thinks need to be done next. But just help me, Lord, show me. And that morning, she said, I just did that this morning just before I went downstairs to start the breakfast. And I said, Lord, I really don't know which thing should be first after the necessary things like breakfast and washing up the dishes. And she said, the Lord just made it very clear to me that I needed to help little Jim with his reading. Jim is seven and he needed some help with his reading. And that works. You only have one thing to do, and it's the will of God, and that's one thing at a time. He never gives you two things at once, unless he gives you the power to do two things at once. And he never asks you to do anything for which he doesn't give you the power. God's command is God's enabling. So I see... This business of laying hold on God 
and being a cooperator with him as a privilege, a share in the work of my Heavenly Father. It's heavenly work in an earthly setting. Do you mean to tell me that cleaning a sink is heavenly work? Yes, that's exactly what I mean to tell you. That is exactly what I mean to tell you. And let me read you just a little poem that somebody sent me not very long ago. When I want to do only great things for you, make me willing to do small, unnoticed things, too. When I want to do what the world will acclaim, make me willing to do what will lift up your name. That's by somebody named B.J. Hoff. I have no idea who she is or who he is. I'll read it again. When I want to do only great things for you, and who of us doesn't have spiritual ambitions, make me willing to do small, unnoticed things, too. When I want to do what the world will acclaim, make me willing to do what will lift up your name. So if I'm going to lay hold on Christ, I must make him my master. He must be Lord of my life. If he is not Lord of my love life, as I've said in my book, Passion and Purity, he is not Lord of your life. It's his glory and his will, and it will be gained only by his power, by his blood, by his daily sustaining and always enough grace, that all-sufficient grace. And I'd like to ask you this afternoon, do you really think he's real? Do you really think he's up there listening, watching? Is he with you? Is he inside you? My Bible tells me he is. Somebody asked me what all these books were about. And I said they're all about the same thing. Every book I've ever written is about two things. It boils down to trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And as far as I can see, that really sums up the Christian life. Trust him. Cast your life upon him. That's the second point now. Do you really think he's real? The question can be answered. You can find out if you do point two. Cast yourself upon him. <coughs> Cast yourself completely on his mercy. And it is not until you have completely flung yourself away, let go of the trapeze, flown out there into space, that you will really find out how solid that rock is. You can't know without obedience. It's only the person who has made up her mind to do what he says. So you just cast yourself upon him, you let go of yourself, you fling yourself into the everlasting arms, and every morning it's a good idea, I think, to make a fresh act of commitment. You can do it once in a lifetime. You can say, Lord, I'm all yours. Here I am, all of you, all of me for you forever. And that's a surrender, a commitment. Maybe some of you have done that in a deliberate going forward in church or getting down on your knees or signing a pledge in your Bible or something like that. And I've done all of the above. 
But daily, I have to make that fresh commitment to remind myself. It's not that God needs to be reminded, but it helps me to bring myself into his presence, just quiet myself before him, and acknowledge once again, Lord, I'm your servant. All I want to do is what you want me to do. I'm available. Just as Mary said to the angel, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. Be it unto me according to your word. Anything you say. Life or death. And I mentioned this morning old age. You know, I, to me, being 65 years old is absolutely thrilling because it is the official old age in this country. But it's also the will of God. It is the will of God. God didn't ask me if I, if he wanted, if I wanted to be born on December, in December of 1926. It was God's will. And so this is one of the terms of my life. And I thank him for that. And so I commit myself and I say, here I am, Lord, all of me for you forever. It doesn't make any difference what happens to me today. And only you know what's going to happen. You know what's on our schedule. And Lars often prays this when we pray together after breakfast. He'll say, Lord, you know the things that we think we need to get done today. You also know the things that we don't know that will be coming in today in the mail or by the phone or by somebody ringing the doorbell. Help us with all of them. We're yours. It's so simple. And when there's a moral decision to make, 99 times out of 100, we know exactly what God wants us to do. The only reason we go to counselors and call up 39 of our closest friends is because we want to hear somebody tell us to do what we want to do. Am I right? Am I ringing any bells out there? My son-in-law is a, pre a preacher, as I told you, and he got a phone call from a man from another church, and he said, I need to talk to you, preacher. Can I come and make an appointment? And so they did, and the man came, and he started his long, sordid story, which my son-in-law could guess the end of long before the man got to it. It turned out that he was in love with somebody else's wife, and of course this man himself had a wife and children, and the lady that he was in love with was married and had children as well. So, after an hour or so of all the gory details, he finally finished his story, and he sat there, and my son-in-law sat there in silence, and finally said to the man, Is that all? And the man said, Well, yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? And Walt said, But didn't you tell me on the phone you had a problem? And the man said, Well, yeah. Yeah, I really, i I got a problem. Walt said, you haven't told me what the problem is. He said, you know what the Bible says about adultery. You didn't have to come to me about that. God's already told you what to do. So, third thing. Do everything for love. If you're already lost in your outline, the title is Lay Hold, point one, you have a new master, point two, cast yourself completely on him, and point three, learn to love him or do everything for love. Now what does loving God really mean in the most practical, understandable, down-to-earth, 
everyday common sense. Loving God means obedience. Very plain in John 14, very plain in, I think it's second or third John epistle, uh, verse 6, I think it is. I think it's third John 6. It says, loving God means doing what he says. And Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, do what I say. And if you immediately respond to that with, but I don't really know what God wants me to do. Maybe you're thinking about some huge decision like the mission field or sell the house or submit to your husband in some very controversial area or what college to go to or what job to get. You know, these huge things that loom so big in our minds and probably are just infinitesimal in God's mind compared with the huge but very simple, very clear matter of forgiveness, for example. You haven't forgiven that person that sinned against you 15 years ago. Oh, but Elizabeth, you don't know what she did to me. No, I don't. But God does. And he says, if you don't forgive your brother in your heart, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. You don't need anybody to tell you what God wants you to do most of the time. Is the bathroom dirty? You don't have to get down on your knees and say, now, Lord, is it your will for me to clean the bathroom? It might not be God's will for you to clean the bathroom right then. It might be that your husband needs to have you mend his trousers right then because he's in a hurry to go to work. So you leave the dirty bathroom and you mend the trousers. That's the will of God. Most of the will of God is so plain, it's staring us in the face at every minute. And every one of you knows when you walk out of this room, you know what God wants you to do next. Maybe he wants you to get a drink of water. Maybe he wants you to buy a book. Maybe he wants you to walk straight out to your car and get home as fast as you can. And when you get home, you know what you have to do when you get home. Maybe there's six things that will be waiting for you. Maybe there's six children that will be waiting for you. Maybe there's, there's a harried husband who is just at the end of his rope at the moment you get there. So it's a good thing you didn't stop at the book table. But you know, God will show you. And you don't need to agonize and pray and get into some very spiritual state of mind. Because spiritual things are visible, tangible, physical things when they are the things that God is asking us to deal with. Peeling an onion is a spiritual work. Because I offer to God. Paul said, where is my husband? Give me a time signal. Thank you. Um, Paul said, even if I'm eating and drinking, I do it for the glory of God. Now, when you're eating and drinking, you're doing something only for yourself, aren't you? Not going to do anybody else any good. And there's no merit whatsoever. There's no virtue in eating and drinking. It's just something you have to do. And if you can do that for the glory of God, certainly you can peel an onion in order to make that delicious stew that your husband loves. For the glory of God. And as for wiping little messy noses, and washing dirty diapers. Think about Mary. She was willing to do that for the Son of God. And Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it for me. 
So do it for love. Loving God means doing what he says. Dishes, diapers, dust, dirty laundry, duty. Do it for God. And if you do it for your husband, you are doing it as to the Lord. And number four, this most baffling one, I'm sure, in your outline, before all heaven's court we work and we fight. Now, where did I ever get this idea? Well, straight out of Hebrews 12. Surrounded as we are by this great cloud of witnesses, referring to Hebrews 11, where all those great witnesses to faith are enumerated from Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses on down to David and Gideon and Samson and Barak and those who are not named, who were sawn in two. What about those? Sawn in two. It says these all died in faith, not having received the promise. For God had provided some better thing for, uh, for them that they, those, these witnesses all around us, without us, you and I here in this room this afternoon, would not be made perfect. And it's too bad there's a chapter break in there, but it goes right on to say, Therefore, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And the race that is set before you, the race that is set before Betty Brandhorst, the race that is set before Elizabeth Elliot, they're different races, aren't they? But all of us with the same goal, the same source. Jesus is the source and the goal, the pioneer and perfecter, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let us run the race that we have to run, remembering the courts of heaven. And there are times when I'm at my worst, when it suddenly dawns on me that they might be watching. Now, I don't know for sure how much they see. It's very possible that they see all of it. And some of you would want to argue about that, and I don't know, so don't argue with me. I don't know. But the the metaphor there is very clearly the metaphor of a stadium with people sitting in the bleachers watching a spectacle. How are we doing? Do you know that beautiful hymn for all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed? Thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia. Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in, this, in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness drear, their one true light. Alleluia. And when the fight is fierce, the warfare strong, peels, steals on the ear. No, when the, when the fight is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song. And hearts are brave again. And arms are strong. Alleluia. Beautiful hymn, one of my favorites. I think of the unseen company, all those unseen saints that, by which we are surrounded. And they're cheering us on, and we are running the race. And let's run it faithfully. Looking unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Who for the joy endured the cross. Do you want to gain what you can never lose? Let go of yourself. 
lay hold on Christ. And I want to leave you with that word of encouragement from Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.